My today's guest, Ben, is originally from Perth, Australia, and we met together in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We talk about how travel widens our perspective of the world, about his work as an open-source developer, and how he builds sustainable online projects. To access all the show notes and links, go to nerdontour.net slash ben. Hello and welcome. I am Piotr Bodera and this is Nerd on Tour podcast for digital nomads. Since 2005, I've been working in tourism and web development around the globe. Here, I combine the best bits of the internet, long-term traveling and decentralization. Each episode unlocks wisdom through the power of thoughtful conversation. My guests are fascinating personalities, vagabonds, developers, artists, entrepreneurs, free spirits, technologists. Together, we explore unique ways of life that will expand your autonomy. Listen to the Nerd Under podcast for free in your preferred podcast app. Would you like to be notified about new episodes? Subscribe to Nerd on Tour newsletter. It's an email subscription list about all things digital nomad. Each Tuesday, you will get a minimalistic email from me. It can contain a short story, link to a new blog post or podcast episode. Every time I try to make it practical and thoughtful. Subscribe at nerdontour.net slash newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Nerd on Tour podcast. My name is Piotrek Bodera and today I am joining Benjamin Lupton, who is also called Ben. He's an open source developer and a white hat hacker. His projects were used in Basecamp, Spotify and also by such companies like Microsoft, Adobe or Atlassian. He's in top 10% for JavaScript, Node.js, jQuery, HTML5 and Ajax on Stack Overflow. He's the most uh, he's the fourth most watched developer in Australia on GitHub. And some of his projects are History.js, uh, one of the most popular JavaScript in the world, Docpad, which was uh, the first big static site generator for Node.js, going over 2000 stars, hundreds of daily users, 200 plugins and 100 contributors. And in 2013, he started something called Startup Hostel, which was a proto-concept for co-working and co-living spaces. That was in Bali. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Pietro. <laughs> How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Well, I'm in Sydney now, so it's pretty cold. At times, pretty gusty as well. But uh, no, other than that. <laughs> awesome. I would like to start from, I think, very interesting point. When I was uh, reading some of your stories, some of your blog posts, I noticed that uh, you experimented on yourself with uh, the period of time that you were living completely without money uh, for about six months. And at uh, the time you were working in one of uh, the best, uh, also one of my favorite restaurants in uh, Sydney, which is called Lentils as anything. 
uh, and uh, this particular restaurant uh, is like run by volunteers and uh, you can pay whatever you want as far as I remember for, for meals and yeah. I think this is also a period of time when you were hitchhiking or you, you, you did your hitchhiking trip throughout Australia but for me it's kind of like all connected to this uh, mindset of uh, alternative living can you uh, tell more about uh, why did you do this and uh, what did you learn from it i actually have a, a post going into like all of the intricate uh, details for that it's just like a guest on github i'll share the link with you and you can put it in the show mm -hmm. notes uh however uh it more occurred quite gradually i went and taught javascript out of school in berlin uh Mm -hmm. So teach data scientists JavaScript programming, and that was quite rewarding. But at the same time, Berlin's quite known for its um, kind of manualist culture or squatting culture or what do we call it, environmental culture, things like that, like ways to kind of push back against capitalism or rather the negatives of capitalism. There's plenty of positives about it as well. And I kind of got introduced into dumpster diving, got introduced to squatting, uh, in Berlin. So for instance, they have an airport there, an old airport, they turn into a park, uh, rather than just bulldozing it, uh, uh <laughs> abandoned buildings, uh, if generally can be used, it seems over there for, uh, communities or communes to kind of take over and restore and use as soup kitchens, things like that. And so you get to see like a lot of food waste, like most of the food we produce ends up being thrown out. This is just mm -hmm. inefficiencies of distribution. Uh, so I kind of got introduced to that kind of world of, hey, there's these bad parts of capitalism um, that aren't really being addressed. Uh, so maybe we can do things to kind of improve on that. And then afterwards, that kind of led me into discovering hitchhiking uh, from an offset of a book called uh, The Moneyless Manifesto by Mark Boyle. He had been living without money for a complete year. He wrote a biography called uh, The Moneyless Man about that. And that really inspired mm -hmm. me. It's kind of like for each category of life, uh, what are the ways of achieving it without money? Um, and at the same time in Sydney, uh, our rent prices were just skyrocketing. And um, in regards to finding work, I found it quite hard to find work because I was doing a lot of open source work and Australia is quite a traditional economy. Uh, the main work for programmers would be in government, medical, uh, or um, banking and... Um, other ones but they all have like really restrictive intellectual property uh laws so mm -hmm. it was pretty much that sorry contracts and it would be a situation where i would go through all the interviews get like the offer and then they'll be like okay however you have to stop your open source work or we would have to own it and that would always be <laughs> the ultimatum i would be given and i would always say no and things kind of ran out and then it seemed moneyless was just way easier to actually do uh, so I did mm -hmm. uh, dumpster diving, did volunteering at Land Towards Anything uh, as my primary source of food for a while. And well, shelter was just like sleeping in parks, sleeping in cemeteries, things like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, hygiene is the biggest issue you will have with like that uh, homeless or, or whatever lifestyle. There's other e equivocations of that word you could use. Um, but yeah, after that, then hitchhiking, I uh, went on to do hitchhiking instead. And that was really rewarding, incredibly rewarding. If anyone wants to do anything uh, in regards to the moneyless life, I would certainly re suggest hitchhiking. You can just do it over a weekend. With COVID, uh, I don't think the f 
I think the fear of COVID, not rather COVID itself, but the fear of it would probably diminish your ability to hitchhike successfully. But the benefit of hitchhiking is you get to, um, you're forced to get along with somebody for an extended period of time. Mm. And because otherwise they'll throw you out and you'd be without a ride. You actually have to get along with somebody who is a complete stranger to get where you want to go. <laughs> so you, you learn how to kind of build rapport with people across every single different way of life uh, possible. So I ended up hitchhiking like about 6,000 kilometers one way and then 4,000 kilometers back. I can't remember the whole distance I traveled, but I was like Perth, the Outback, Uluru, Alice Springs um, to mm -hmm. Brisbane and then down the coast back to Sydney, uh, Mel Melbourne, Adelaide, and then back to Perth. So very big. It's kind of like <laughs> the size of USA is what I hitchhiked. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also did a little bit of hitchhiking in, in Australia. And uh, I, I totally agree that uh, it's it's very rewarding. You never know when someone will pick you up. So uh, like keeping high spirits and staying positive is like extremely mm. important because after, you know, 15 minutes, you can be like very down, like, oh, nobody wants to help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But with this attitude, you will never find another person who will help you and then right. when the person uh finally comes uh it's it's really uh, diverse yeah it's uh, i don't know if it's uh, made by uh, some grand design in the universe <laughs> but it seems that there is never similar person that would pick you up yeah like sometimes it's a businessman who is just looking for some uh interesting story because he remembers that when he was a teenager he was trying to to do some hitchhiking and other times right. <laughs> i remember there was a, a strange couple that was into birds like uh, you know um, breeding parrots and my <laughs> like you know a passenger next to me was a was a parrot <laughs> in a cage <laughs> in the back of the of the car so <laughs> it was really really interesting to 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 do uh, to do it in australia so i think it it a little bit uh, connects to um the australian culture in general it seems that the the freedom or the perception of of individual freedom is kind of important and uh, you do associate yourself with this culture with this country so could you tell a bit more how do you view it sure uh one thing to add into uh just a hitchhiking thing uh onto it and what mm. you said is that I, I'm a very goal-orientated person, so I kind of looked at life like lifestyle experiments. Colin Wright uh, has a great talk about extreme lifestyle experiments. And uh, mm -hmm. when I went into hitchhiking, it was also I wanted to improve my faith in humanity and develop patience, two things I severely lacked. And hitchhiking 10,000 <laughs> kilometers requires those two things. So I was like, what mm -hmm. type of experiment can I do to acquire the traits? Uh, that I want and hitchhiking was that experiment and I suddenly acquired those traits like 15 minutes waiting is is pretty good when uh, I spent like three days waiting uh, once in the outback <laughs> so yeah it, uh, it's definitely for that but yeah for the culture part and how it integrates with others Australians have this heritage right of being the convicts and the uh, kind of the free people um, back before like they didn't They kind of made their own way um, when they first came. But Australia was also the uh, 
the new America in terms of how important it was to colonize uh, once its mm -hmm. value was kind of discovered. So America, uh, England, uh, they just try to get as much immigration to Australia as possible. They, uh, there's even stories where uh, they would go to schools or orphanages and just say, who wants to go on a vacation? Uh, and then just take the kids. Really? Um, yeah. So uh, there's okay. there was a big mass uh, immigration emigration to Australia at the time, and then you had the whole gold rush, which is always a great way to get uh, immigrants into your country. But uh, it's quite harsh conditions and things like that. So there's kind of like this heritage there. Uh, but in regards to how it's kind of played out with modern culture, uh, through hitchhiking, that's kind of how... I learned Australia is much bigger than my little bubble being in a city or whatever it is because you experience every single like walk of life, every single creed or caste or class of people, mm. um, all sorts. And, you know, you and them get along with each other. So when I grew up, I grew up in Perth, which is a very, it's one of the most isolated cities in Australia. I think it probably is. Mm. But it's five, actually, it depends how you measure it, but it's 5,000 kilometers to the next capital city, um, which is mm -hmm. quite a, a distance, three days drive to the next capital. Well, I actually have a uh, prepared statement uh, for that question because Piotrek was kind enough to share me the show notes so I don't have to ramble. Uh, so I've got, my cultural heritage is Australian, which only becomes palpable when interacting with other cultures, especially with other Westerners. Australians have had a large emphasis on disagreeableness, fortitude and strength, as well as on assimilation. This is an observation of hitchhiking throughout Australia, and these values continue to be undermined by the modern importation of American culture through the dominance in English spoken news, media and social media. This is especially seen in the millennial Australian cities who confuse Australia with America. So one of the issues we have uh, in Australia is probably the same as America, many, probably even through Europe, is people, the culture of the rural areas versus city areas are quite different. But in Australia, it mm -hmm. seems to be a bit worse. We have another factor here because we're in an English-speaking country and there's only like... 25 million or 30 million Australians compared to uh, actually it's probably even less than that uh, compared to America's 350 million uh, so America mm -hmm. just dominates in English spoken content so if you're growing up with the internet uh, today then you're consuming mostly American content American media American social media uh, so one of the issues is happening uh, is uh, with the youth is they have this Australian culture locally in their local reality, but then their mind is with the internet and it is with American culture instead. And there's a big disconnect there. That's And I noticed this myself when I started traveling. Australians would clash with Americans often because we are a bit more boisterous. We say what we think. We care about the battle of ideas and freedom quite a fair amount, uh, when Am Americans tend to overemphasize on politeness. Uh, and overemphasize on protecting people's sensitivities. So it okay. became quite a conflict with um, with work and things like that. But at the same time, uh, Australians, uh, that focus on assimilation, like we don't care who you are, what you do or whatever it is, like you're a person and we'll get along with you as long as you're there to also respect us as a person, not really respect our ideas, but respect us mm -hmm. as a person. And we saw this, I saw this actually a lot when I would travel in Bali. 
uh, the Australians, well, actually, there's a big difference. <laughs> there's uh, half of Bali is the Kutra Australians, uh, like the miners <laughs> who go there and get drunk and have an amazing time because they work two weeks in the mine and then two weeks in Bali, like living in Bali, so two mm. weeks on, two weeks off. And they earn amazing mm -hmm. paychecks, so they just live in Bali. But outside of that, it's... Um, but at least from my personal experience, I was in a co like a working retreat in Bali and I would always really greatly emphasize with the Balinese people and kind of always treated them as equals even though they're very different in regards to their work and their, their incomes and their lifestyle a little bit like that, but always this mm -hmm. great respect. Um, when the Americans just kind of treated them like servants, like they would just order them around and kind of be a bit rude and maybe that's like the way that they deal with you know the, the expectation of like high customer service in america uh but i kind mm. of find it a little bit shocking at least when i was in bali <laughs> so before we move to bali yeah. Uh, yeah. I, i would still uh, like to to dig a bit more into the concept of, of australian culture yeah uh, can you tell Because if we like it or not, the internet is this uh, huge pipe for all of us. Yeah? It doesn't matter if you are living in a rural place in Australia or a rural place in Poland, in Europe. You have this, this huge amount of American culture coming to you. But at the same time, this huge pipe is, is also allowing for you to, to spread your message to the world. And there are mm. a few uh, creators you know people who who grew up into the position that they are a massive uh internet creators and they are not you know part of this american uh kind of machine of of uh, creating celebrities uh, so how do you see it today like um is there a way for australians or do you uh have your own way of spreading those values that you are talking about and not getting into the uh, machine of americanized culture mm. uh well it's a little bit tricky like at least in the australia the internet connections are uh, quite poor unless you've benefited from the national broadband network But even mm -hmm. then, the earlier rollouts of that would be fiber, but artificially constrained to like 40 megabits, 80 megabits, or 100 megabits with different ups mm -hmm. on those as well. Um, so where we are, uh, we're paying like 50 USD a month. Obviously, those prices are in Australian, but no one knows what the Australian dollar is. So I'll just say like 50 <laughs> USD a month. <laughs> thank uh, you, thank for, you. Yeah, for like for, uh, what, what is it? Yeah, 40 megabits down and then like 20 megabits up which but then at my mum's place back in perth they would be getting um like 100 megabits um up and then like something uh, sorry 100 megabits down and then something up as well for about maybe a little bit more but that's mm -hmm. the mbn and the mbn has only rolled out to like a minority of the city folk um but in the country they're still on dial up of satellite connections mm -hmm. like two megabits connections things like that the rural areas we actually went to see mm -hmm. um a family member who lives in the central coast of australia and that like you don't really get cell reception there unless you're on telstra um so yeah the mm -hmm. internet connection is not equal uh in australia and it is quite expensive and i in regards to like australian internet celebrities i think we do have a few we've got pogo a musician we've got um 
uh, Aussie Man Reacts, which is like a comedian. Uh, we do quite well actually on comedians. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, outside of, oh, and then we have, uh, at least the ones I know of, a lot of political commentators. We also have uh, probably a few famous um, vegans as well um, mm-hmm. who kind of talk about that and probably then like your typical surfers and your typical careers. But yeah, I what's the question again? Because or how I maintain spreading uh, no, no. the culture. Yeah, exactly. Because it's right. it's important to know some examples yeah. of those internet uh, creators that are uh, making their life by <laughs> getting into the, the, the global right. uh, audience. But what's your approach to, to this? Because I think, at least from my perspective, culture is like one of the best products that anyone can create and spread to the mm. world. And if they want to you know, uh, dip it into the sauce of their own culture, it's even better, yeah? Because uh, people tend to realize like, oh, I really like this Aussie guy. Yeah? And it's always this connection that, oh, there is Australia as a country, they have some interesting parts of their culture. So this guy is just one example of, you know, showing this uh, to the world. So do you have some particular uh, creations, projects that tend to, to spread this message? Right, yeah, well, I kind of, it's hard because we're always talking about generalizations, but generalizations are generally mm-hmm. the way they are, they are because generally they are true. So, you know, mm-hmm. a generalization <laughs> about Australian culture is what is general about many Australians, right? Um, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. If, they were, if they were all the same, then there wouldn't be any point of separating them. So the, um, yeah, at least for me, uh, it kind of ties a little bit into what I do. I, it's... It's kind of a, a struggle. I, I don't particularly think like I need to spread Australian culture. Australian culture has like done a lot of things better than the USA, but at the same time, mm-hmm. there's a few things I think the USA does better. Um, like all cultures have like their benefits and the cons. I don't really look at myself as like you know a, a Australian patriot who wants to spread Australian culture as much as possible. I just want to take the best from sure. any culture and then kind of learn from that and also embrace different cultures at different times you know, whichever one seems right at the time or serves you best at the time. Regarding the, but one of the things I think is really important about Australia that we have done well is that freedom of debate and that freedom of speech. I think we do it very well. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have, one of the things, it's kind of hard because like in Australia, in America, there's these riots or these protests, like they always get pretty vicious, like pretty intense. Uh, not always, obviously, but generally uh, mm-hmm. when I look at American protests, I see people chanting and screaming and it's very monotonous, very boring uh, and very forceful. Uh, when Australian protests, yeah. I've attended a few and you would have marches of a few thousand people and it'll be peaceful and yeah, maybe there would be chanting, but the chanting is a little bit weird because it's a little bit cultic, but they would never mm-hmm. go into this type of violence or any type mm-hmm. of rioting and we actually uh, see this with kind of the way I think Australians kind of operate here in regards to the culture. There's a famous uh, video when Lauren Southern, a kind of political commentator came to Australia and she went outside a mosque and then started interrogating mm-hmm. these Muslims and then the police came and said, hey look, you're disturbing the peace and she's like, don't you have freedom of speech? <laughs> And then it was like, well, you do, but uh, you're not allowed to disturb the civility of other people. You also have to be civil. 
and exactly. they're not really wanting to engage. You need to create a space where people want to engage. Um, you need to, you know, have the consent and have that space. Um, so for us, we really care about civility a lot, even though, you know, we can battle things out. And where in my interactions with some other cultures, they don't do that nearly as much, like Malaysia being one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you wrestle against the government or things like that and people just shut down they just don't know what to do when you're asking like well why did you do it this way and they have no idea they're just following orders uh or in the u.s they just they the urge to be polite and not to offend people can cause harm there because you're not finding truth you're just protecting people's sensibilities or sensitivities um mm-hmm. so what uh, three years ago i actually got really big into philosophy I had a series of traumas in my life, traumas, 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 depending on your accent. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, they didn't line up with any of the narrative I had been fed, uh, mostly working in tech, uh, dealing with a lot of Americans who just didn't add up. Uh, so I engaged with philosophy, I challenged a lot of my life, that hitchhiking monolith thing was part of it. And afterwards, I was like, oh, wow, like I can learn the smart way and study culture and study society through books like the classics or, you know, even if they're only written 50 years ago or so, like some great books really go far, timeless works. Or I can mm-hmm. um, learn the hard way always by being smacked by life. Uh, and <laughs> I co-founded this uh, study group and it grew over the year. And the first year we did private conversations because we were like kind of completely terrified, like, of what would happen if these conversations went out because a lot of our members were from e- like some were from Egypt or China like actually places that don't have any freedom of speech and then mm-hmm. others were just concerned about you know losing jobs but we're all having these conversations to find truth and then in the end we kind of felt like hey we're wise enough to wrestle with threat and that's actually part of uh, wisdom a part of you know becoming stronger in life is becoming wiser so even if your vulnerabilities are exploited, you have the strength to overcome that exploitation. So you want to reduce your ability of being exploited. But even if you do, even if you are, then you know you're okay. So we mm-hmm. kind of became wiser and then we're like, hey, we should share what we're actually knowing. So we set up the Beverly community, which is this study group um, to kind of develop collaborative wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's that's worked really well. We've kind of you know, highly diverse uh, participants, not so much in the public calls, okay, okay. but let more me, in the private calls. Let me calls. pause yep. you for, for a second. Yep. Then. Uh, I would like to, to dig in uh, more right. into Beverly Project uh, in, in a second. Yep. Uh, but okay. just to, to rewind a bit <laughs> into the part when uh, you were saying about exploring different cultures and uh, yep. kind of like appreciating them at the time that, for example, you are living in Malaysia because you right. were for, for some extended period yep. of time. And I think this is a, a really nice segue to to talk more about the digital nomad uh, journey. Yeah, that uh, okay. think of uh, ability that our type of work <laughs> is uh, giving us to, to actually live in other countries. I am right now uh, still in Kuala Lumpur, uh, finishing my my stay here, but uh, it was a really interesting time to, to experience how does it uh, work here. <laughs> and I do uh, acknowledge and, and see the things you, you are talking about. Uh, um, for example, how locals are approaching 
you know big issues yeah when the lockdowns are imposed and what what is their reaction and how they uh you know if they are uh, asking questions <laughs> or not yeah <laughs> if they are mm. um kind of like challenging the the authorities uh, and what way they are ch challenging them so yeah yeah definitely the 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 perspective of multi multicultural experience is very important so let's get into your kind of beginnings the, the origin of your digital nomad story uh, what was the first country you you visited in terms of like actually spending them their uh, extended period of, period of time and like working remotely working on your laptop and uh, how then it developed yeah well working in it i did uh, and also open source i get invited and sometimes get approved because mm -hmm. of the cost of flying over in australia to many different conferences or schools and companies to do training talks or uh yeah trainings to talks and um so those mm -hmm. would be like one to three months deployments uh like overseas in a different country um or if mm -hmm. it's a talk then it's just like two weeks but i would see if i could extend it but in 2017 that's when i kind of really decided i want to do the digital nomad stuff full time i kind of felt like i got the most out of australia that i could and i watched this great mm -hmm. talk by roger ver on the ruben report and he also kind of he said in that something like you should live wherever serves you best and mm. that really hit home i in australia for instance yeah in sydney uh like it's two thousand dollars australian or let's say like a thousand five hundred dollars uh usa or a thousand two hundred and fifty uh dollars usd for like a mm -hmm. month's rent in like a dingy apartment that's like an hour out of the city but then five hundred dollars <laughs> a month. That's just the apartment cost, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, just the apartment cost, and then like eating out is like good. Good luck on that. And then if you go in a KL, it's five hundred USD a month. We'll get you like a brand new apartment, the gym, and a pool that's in a nice area. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you want to get some dosa or something for breakfast, it only costs you like less than one USD. Uh, mm. And the people are a lot kind of uh now it's different like in australia like sydney is seems to be fairly unique uh you'll walk you know around the park and you'll say hello and people will just stare at you as if you're crazy but where i grew up in <laughs> perth you walk around the park and you say like oh g'day uh and all the rest and people acknowledge your existence and they'll have a chat with you or you know at least walk by and like say g'day back um like you actually mm -hmm. uh, there's this kind of communal uh or or community feeling I mean, that's not present in like the big cities, even though it's there in Perth. And I spoke to a Tasmanian, he kind of felt the same. And also in Brisbane, it's a little bit similar. Like uh, you can kind of tell because like in Sydney, it's like, what do you do? How can I benefit from you? And whereas the other mm -hmm. cities is more like, who are you and how can I help you? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, who like okay. tell me all about yourself kind of thing. Yeah. So uh in 2017 uh i decided to spend go to bali on a mm -hmm. uh, one month visa uh and then i extended it to two months and then i think i followed up with then a three month uh social budia visa because i have a lot of friends now uh over my life uh, that i've developed in bali so social budia visa mm -hmm. you get like a local balinese to uh, sh give you a shout kind of thing or, or mm -hmm. what, what's the uh, what's the non-australian uh lingo for that like verify or validate 
that you're a good person. Yeah, um, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That they kind of prove that uh, they can be your kind of uh, guardian, <laughs> or, right. or just a person that that verifies you as a as a local, yeah, to, to local yeah. authorities. Yeah. Uh, so it's, but it's also like a a thing that you're a worthy person of being in Bali. Like you're not. They vouch for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, vouch. That's the word. Yeah, vouch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they vouch for you and uh, your character. And yeah, so then I spent three months there and geez, that was a joy as well. Mm -hmm. Why Bali? Is it because of your uh, friends or, or because you, you yeah. were there earlier, yeah, when you were younger, just like a short trip? Right. What, was it yeah. also the reason you wanted to come back? Well, it's well for Perth, uh, if you look at the geography of the world uh, it, and the economics in Perth, it's like depending on the sales, it's $200 return flight from Perth to Bali. Whereas you go to anywhere else in Australia, you're looking at a $400 return flight. So Perth is cheaper, mm -hmm. like citizens of Western Australia, it's cheaper and quicker to go to internationally to Bali uh, than it is to go anywhere else in Australia. Um, <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's why as well, like the miners, they like live in Bali because they okay. spend two weeks in the mine, two weeks off on the leave and then they live in Bali. They have a property over there kind of thing. So Bali is kind of like a good first choice. And my parents have been going there since the 70s. Uh, my parents were pretty avid travelers and took me all around Australia and not really overseas so much besides Bali. Apparently when I was a kid, they took me all over around the world, but I don't remember it at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. But Bali really shaped me. Like when I first went there when I was 18, um, also, I was a very party-going and outgoing person and kind of loved, you know, that, you know, vibe kind of thing. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe those 20-year-old Americans who I kind of chastised earlier, maybe it's just inexperienced. Maybe they're just young and they enjoy it. There's actually mm -hmm. a movie mm -hmm. kind of like that called Not Today. It's a great movie about India. Mm. But, uh, yeah, and then uh, it was only about like halfway through that first trip and then like I actually saw like the poverty of Bali like and my wealth and that contrast between them that mm. really shook me uh, quite hard and I couldn't really play Xbox or anything anymore uh, when I got back home. <laughs> I couldn't really okay. enjoy myself anymore because I was just imagined that poverty and uh, yeah, that really kind of cemented in me like a need to like do good for people and that's also why i burned out from the rat race in sydney because <laughs> i didn't felt but, like making okay, coffee so apps for rich, was there, rich people was a good thing yeah i i understand the uh, kind yeah. of implication of uh, your experience yeah. but i just want to be sure was there any like particular situation in bali that you encounter uh, some person that was like really poor because yeah. You know, like you, I, I assume you, you saw homeless people before, uh, or, or like poor people before, even yeah. in your city or on, 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 in the movies. Yeah. Like you, you were aware right. that they exist, but of course it's, it's different when you kind of see them in real life. So how was it in Bali? Like, was there any specific situation? Yeah. Yeah, well, so back then, Bali was very different than it is now. Now it's hugely gentrified. Uh, mm -hmm. There is still poverty in some areas, and I have friends in those uh, towns. And But even then, and like the, the 
it's very different. So like what happened in that trip was we started off in like Kuda and Seminyak and all that, like the party areas. And then we, uh, my father hired a bus for me and my friend and my friend was uh, from Brazil uh, and a, mm-hmm. maybe a bit older than me, but we were just two guys and my dad kind of just like really enjoying it. But my dad's a lot wiser there. And um, yeah, we traveled around the um, island and at times you would see like, you know, kids try and sell you postcards and then you realize from the exchange rate you just pay like 20 bucks for a postcard and then you would get annoyed mm-hmm. at that and then my dad would say well think of it this way you just gave them like rice for a month <laughs> or something like okay. that and um but then there was uh get get waterfall and it was like we got there really early and it was like a two-hour walk uh down or something like that, some very long walk, and none of the shops were open. They were still opening, and um, mm-hmm. when we got back, all the shops had opened. And uh, there's this one lady about halfway, and um, she was very skinny, and uh, she had the shop, and uh, she was trying to sell me like a kimono, like one of those Japanese dresses, and I was like, yeah. I have no need for this, and it started off like twenty bucks. And then um, $10 and then $5 and then $1 and then 50 cents and then like 5 cents and then like 1 cent. And she's just on her knees like begging me to buy this. And I didn't have like I left my wallet like all the way back up and I just Mm -hmm. and like she was doing like everything right besides like product market fit <laughs> right but like all that, all that initiative okay. Okay. uh was there right and it's just like like yeah it just took me many years to to kind of wrestle with that like now i know it's product market fit uh which was like yeah, the main yeah, issue yeah. she was facing but like uh it's it's really hard and and kind of going into my things like my my interactions with Bali. I went back there in like 2013, like several years later, and like mm-hmm. found a restaurant that was kind of struggling and it was a great vegan restaurant. And I added them to Google Maps, and um, then their business took off and uh, they can send oh, like nice. they 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 like they were just kind of operating out of like their bedroom kind of thing <laughs> like like and okay. a few little tables and then now like they've you know expanded it out they're sending their son to university they have employees they have multiple things just <laughs> like a few little things like westerners just completely take for granted like a google maps listing can change the lives for these people and my dad kind of showed me that back then as well uh, he would always mm-hmm. take secondhand prescription glasses. He would just go to like the uh, thrift stores um, and just buy mm-hmm. as many like glasses he could, like uh, focals um, he could, and he would just bring them to Bali when he would arrive. And people would and just hand them out, and people would cry because for the first time they could see because they couldn't afford seeing an optometrist. Um, and it's not the accurate prescription, okay. but it's better than what they had. And when I went back in. 2015 i got you know a little uh grab from the airport and in bali you can get little motorbikes to take you places rather than kl wet's cars and it was like Mm -hmm. a 15 year old kid or something like that driving me like an hour for like maybe two dollars or three dollars or something like that (laughs) ridiculously cheap and Mm. that was just empowered by like an i like an old school iphone 
Uh, so what I did was, what I do is I just uh, bring as many like secondhand old phones that Westerners just leave in the drawers to Bali and I give them out to people who need them. Um, because, you know, a okay. little crappy iPhone that stays in our drawer is a career in these areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you for sharing those stories. It now makes more sense about uh, the the difference, yeah, what what you experienced and how much impact you you feel you have and you you actually have. Uh, so yeah. um, it's it's really interesting to to see this from from this perspective. And uh, I think we are uh, a bit uh, going back into this, this this phase, yeah, when the whole tourism industry is now almost completely stopped, and uh, many places like Bali was uh, benefiting only from this mm. industry. So all those people are probably, you know, going back into this dire uh, situation. So uh, yeah, maybe we will need to to go back into this uh, this uh, behavior to, to to just give them whatever we can once we we of course can can go back to, to those places. Um, if I may, uh, I would like to just yeah. just let me one th- point on that because you, you also have to as well make sure that what you give them is going to be used. So for instance, like the movie Slumdog Millionaire, that type of abuse uh-huh. of poverty. Uh, also exists in Bali. Uh, you see this a lot in Ubud. There would be kind of not really like like collectives of women who would deliberately starve their baby because it would produce more uh, handouts um, yeah. for money, things like that. So, mm. <laughs> so charity, just like charity, blind charity isn't the answer. And that type of undiscriminatory compassion can do a lot of harm the movie slumdog millionaire or even the movie not today kind of goes into that mm. yeah i'm um, I, i do t- totally agree with with the statement that uh like the worst thing you can do to let's say poor kids uh, doesn't matter if it's in bali or in some uh, african countries or even in your neighborhood and uh, you bring like a bag of of sweets yeah or or some candies and just hand them it's (laughs) it's it's creating this this vicious loop of of them demanding from any wealthy person some Mm. kind of treats and this treat maybe it will be like useful for three seconds because they will feel this uh, you know sugar rush and it's like oh fine f- nice but when they are actually starving or when they are actually in, in in some very bad situation it's not great to to to, to like yeah. you know damage their teeth and damage their health and and create also this behavior that uh, next time they will see someone it will be like oh give me give me whatever you have yeah because right. it's not what you what we want to 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 create but i think you have this unique uh, situation as you were saying yeah, that you have a lot of people who are actually living in bali so you 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 know you trust those locals those uh, you know people who are there uh, day by day and you can you know talk to them and they will tell you oh like my neighbor have this issue could you could you help them yeah so because <laughs> you know how how to connect to them and how to you know directly influence them in a very positive way yeah right yeah yeah if i can just add one more thing to that um sure, sure. <laughs> to cement what you were saying is the um i went 
I, I did like a tour in 2017 with a Papuan girl, mm. just a friend. And uh, we went on the Western coast and there was this man, an old man, probably 70 or so. And he was just like picking up um, plastics on the ocean. Um, and mm. I think I offered him money or something. And the girl was horrified and she slapped me. <laughs> I, and I, I was like, what's the problem? And he says, and it, the conclusion from the conversation was you would rob him from dignity and ruin his incentives. Mm. And he also refused when I handed out the money, but the girl kind of lectured me on, on the thing. And it, it's hard because, you know, if one can earn like 10 times their income or a hundred times their income, you know, begging to tourists or whatever it is, placating tourists, then is that work that actually adds value back into the economy? And what he did was mm -hmm. dignified work. It did add value back into his community. Um, and they take pride in that. They take a lot of pride. In, and you should always make sure that your gifts should always increase their dignity, not, not take away from it yeah yeah i <laughs> it's it's really interesting because uh, the 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 conversation here is actually turning into the po point uh that i spent some time of, of like thinking and and realizing that the best uh, thing we can do uh, is actually try to improve the system yeah in a sense that <laughs> the the problem is not particularly plastic bottles on a beach or the person who is like you know need to to go through the rubbish and like collect them or or you like handing him the money or the <laughs> friend who kind of slapped you because mm -hmm. all of it is actually part of some bigger bigger kind of structure bigger system that uh we can see we can see as a as a country yeah as like indonesia or as an island as a bali or as a global kind of you know capitalism system yeah so um mm. definitely it's it's um, interesting and uh, i do believe that people like bill gates is one of those figures that is spending a lot of time first like understanding the system <laughs> yeah like what's broken what's what's uh, like why do people still uh, are are uh, getting polio disease and how to eradicate it yeah so he he is actually you know looking from from this uh, <laughs> probably best possible perspective that that anyone can and try to to improve the whole system yeah not the particular single cases but uh, to do that and yeah it's it's uh, neither me or you are <laughs> experts in charity or in in uh, humanitarian efforts uh, but uh, if you want to help uh, dear listener there is always a way uh, that someone is doing this uh, on, on a you know great scale and and just try to reach them try to to help them if you can help with money do that if you can help with your time your volunteering that's that's also helpful and uh, i think it, it it connects a little bit to your experience in uh, lentils yeah in this uh yeah. very particular restaurant uh, can you tell a bit more uh, how was that uh, you know time uh, kind of like doing completely something that is not it that is not uh, <laughs> right using some some machines to to earn money but you were a waiter yeah and, and a cook in in this place yep. yeah yeah and bartender there? as well <laughs> Sorry. when they okay, had a bar okay. um <laughs> yeah yeah well it, at the same time like i i kind of 
in that year I, I burned out from like that rat race i was like you know it is making coffee apps for rich people so they get the coffee quicker actually making the world mm. better and just flash back to that bali experience uh, and i was like no it's not and then i kind of you know had a lot of thoughts of where capitalism is bad and then kind of also i just wanted a change of pace and lentils really provided that uh, for me at the time and mm. you know it was just such a joy to actually be like you know rather than working with knowledge work where the outcome is so many orders of magnitude distant away from you as the creator instead with food and giving food to people who need it who pay what they have uh then it uh it, you know it's very different like my whole job there was like just make customers as happy and satiated as possible you would sit down mm -hmm. with them you would talk with them you know make sure they they feel welcome and and whatnot and uh give them food that actually satiates them it was a very very nice change i whether or not i would still recommend it now i'm not sure because a lot of these type of things they end up to some extent going into like a more toxic harmony or toxic compassion type thing where like to mm -hmm. try and make everyone feel welcome they exclude a lot of people mm. like people who and this is that part about like you can't battle ideas anymore because someone could be offended mm -hmm. lentils uh, may at least that one in newtown seems to be going that way i don't know i, I i've lived too far away from newtown now uh to really okay. participate in that but it is a, a a issue there one one thing to add on to the uh the charity bit is effective altruism it's a website that kind of lists charities by what actually produces the best results is by Peter Singer. Mm. For mm. Bill Gates, I'm not actually sure whether I, I'm as enthused by him as, as you are because um, <laughs> some of the things they could do is like eliminate patents um, or at least allow uh, other countries to, to do things like uh, this movie like uh, Blood on Water or something like that, which is about like the patent issues with pharmaceuticals in Africa versus India. Um, and kind mm -hmm. of the cost of lives that happened there because um, they want that return on investment or to some extent maybe they already have it and they're just abusing power. So there's a lot, a lot of bad things <laughs> that are done in the name of good. Sure, sure thing. And yeah, I think we, we should iterate once more. None of us are experts uh, in this field. Everyone can have their own kind of opinion <laughs> and idea <laughs> what to do and how to do. Uh, so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a thing that we, we also need to learn throughout our lives. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a thing that you can just uh, watch a three minute video on YouTube and uh, pretend that you completely get what the world is about and what the issue is about and how to solve it. So uh, if I may uh, kind of switch back to, to the topic that uh, we are both uh, kind of more experienced and uh, more uh, into, uh, can you tell me uh, more about uh, the, the digital nomad lifestyle that you were performing uh, and you know, not only Bali, but also Kuala Lumpur, uh, were there also other places? And uh, how do you kind of schedule your work uh, when you were uh, in those places? Right, yeah. So um, I initially set out in Thailand, uh, and then I ended up finding KL and staying at uh, the hatchery. I KL mean Kuala mm -hmm. Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, and I stayed there, I can't remember, I think I booked it maybe for two weeks and then extended it on and I think, I can't remember how long I stayed there, but it was quite a long time, maybe three or six months and then I ended up going to Cyberjaya. But 
The issue with uh, Kuala Lumpur is its three-month visas, which is one of the best for Asia. So Yes, so, definitely. Yeah, because Bali, it's one-month visa, which sometimes you can renew for another month, but then it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of marking around, or you can get the social Budia visa, which is the way to go. But either way, you're looking at like three-month visas. I think Philippines actually has a longer one as well. Uh, I, at the time, I did like a spreadsheet of all the different countries, what their tax requirements are, as well as what their visa requirements are. Uh, and Malaysia nice. was one of the best <laughs> options for that. Philippines was another one. I just, maybe my life would have been very different if I selected Philippines. Hmm. But yeah, Malaysia, uh, Kuala Lumpur is fantastic. It's where my quality of life has probably been highest. The, you get a great apartments, very affordable for Westerners. If you work in as an information worker, KL is great because it's high quality internet, stable infrastructure, and kind of like a first world experience. The only issue where mm-hmm. I really struggled with there was nutrition. They mm-hmm. do not have any conception of nutrition. It doesn't cross their minds. It's all about taste and all about that experience of the food and uh yeah so if you want nutrition you got to buy things yourself and make your own food kind of thing otherwise mm-hmm. you're going to be eating takeout like all the time and sometimes you can get takeout that's kind of okay which is like the little salad boxes kind of thing but even that that'll drive you to the ground if you're eating that for a month <laughs> so <laughs> nutrition was was difficult but the the prices there are very affordable it's part of the mainland um, of the world, uh, of, the, mm-hmm. of the European, Asian, African world. It's all one continent. So prices are very cheap because distribution is cheap. And mm-hmm. they have durian, which is fantastic. The issue I ran in, though... <laughs> Your favorite. <laughs> uh, yeah, with, uh, Ke- with Kuala Lumpur was... Um, and this is just in general, it's something Airbnb should do a lot better on, is mm. areas that are actually suitable for work. And Airbnb does like have a little filter for that. But sometimes it's it's you can click it, sometimes you don't. But the issue is you would get to an Airbnb and it's completely undersupplied. They've done the minimal necessary to market the place to you. You have to buy like new utensils, new kitchen things to stay long term because you actually want to mm-hmm. stay long term. You're not a backpacker, you're a digital nomad. So you have to restock the kitchen, you have to you know do the whole shebang you buy a lot to make the life more comfortable and then three months later you got to pack it all up and then go somewhere else for a minimum seven days and then you come back Mm. and you know you're probably going to go that seven day thing like who just wants to go somewhere for seven days you're probably going to turn that into two weeks or a month or something like that and enjoy somewhere else but it's uh like the minimum of seven days then you got to go back and if you're staying somewhere else because you couldn't renew the rental or whatever then you have to buy everything all again you have to re-establish everything, <laughs> figure out where the supermarket is, what is all the routes. Like you just mm. go through this thing where every three months your life is like uh, kind of thrown, your work is kind of put on pause. And if you go to Bali, Bali is another can of worms where like the internet is absolutely abysmal. The infrastructure is abysmal. And, uh, you know, there could be a, the co-working spaces could be good, but with Bali, because mm. of the intense gentrification, the publicity the island has every year you go, it's different. It's more gentrified. 
uh, place you love may <laughs> not even exist anymore. It probably got knocked down for something else. Or the previous co-working okay. space you went is now overcrowded and the internet is now crap. So right, <laughs> with Bali, it's just it's changing like, really yeah. fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in Bali, okay. my suggestion is just like, uh, just get a SIM card. Data is so cheap. Don't do it like, like I have, uh, Google Map reviews. I can probably share it with Peertrek about where at least mm-hmm. I go. But yeah, just get SIM card, high Google data, and sorry, high giga, high data, and then um, and then just work uh, at a comfortable apartment or wherever it is that you would live, mm. um, and that would be a good cementing for that. Otherwise, try some of the co-working spaces. There's actually one that I think is quite good, but whether it's still good now, who knows? Because Bali's always changing. <laughs> But the issue is, it's just not, it's hot, it's humid, um, and it's beautiful weather, like all the time, nearly. You want to be outside mm-hmm. enjoying the paradise of the island. So uh, mm-hmm. when KL, it's more like a city. So you actually want to get some work done and actually enjoy the beautiful weather there as well. So mm-hmm. you kind of want to get yourself to um, uh, be compatible with the environment rather than fighting against it. Like if temple bells and everything and Muslim prayers are going off all the time when you're trying to sleep, just enjoy it. Like just go out and actually be part of the culture (laughs) rather than fight it every single way. If the internet isn't working, then go for a ride on your bike. Like it's, um, (laughs) but yeah, if you're expecting to get like high quality work done for your startup, which you're an employee at, Bali is in the place. If your KL (laughs) is going to be the place for that. But yeah, yeah Bali's more like I the agree. paradise where you can get a little bit of work done. <laughs> yeah. And then party. <laughs> of yeah. course. Yeah. If you if yeah. you are into this kind of things. <laughs> so yeah. it's interesting to 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 listen to those kind of reviews or, or your impressions of, of places. But can you just tell why did you decide to to, to go abroad and to to, to work uh, remotely? Like is it only because of the economics that you know you can bring your Australian dollars and convert them into the local currency and like mm. everything is so cheap? Uh, are there any other reasons that you that you want to do that? Like, um, is it also connected to to those kind of statements that you said before that you should choose the place uh, that's kind of like the best suit for you? Yeah. It's actually those two, right? Like economically, it's mm-hmm. a no-brainer, and also where serves you better. Like in KOM, I have a much better life uh, than I do. Um, it's not just mm-hmm. it's cheaper. I have a better life there. And however, with there's also one other reason. And Australia is very comfortable to live. You never really see the struggles of people. And if mm-hmm. you're in uh, KL, you know where you're eating for your. 50 cent dosa and barter for breakfast or whatever, these people aren't in the best uh, conditions and you make friends with them. And you mm-hmm. make friends with a lot of people uh, in KL and, uh, or in Bali and things like that. Like in Bali, I have friends like all the uh, spectrums of income kind of thing. Like uh, I have a good friend in a fishing village called uh, Roman O'Brien uh, and he, mm-hmm. he goes by either. And um you know they they it's their own whole journey there and and they're also on google maps i added them to google maps so you can run some fishing village tours um but <laughs> nice yeah it, it's like you know if you actually see things you can improve every single day 
it makes you feel more happy, more important, and you know, more in touch with the world and, and more connected and more meaningful. Uh, when in Australia, if you just live on your couch watching TV all the time and just work a little bit and get the train with other depressed people, it, uh, <laughs> it, it's like that's not a nice life. Like instead, go somewhere yeah. where, where your existence actually makes the world a better place, where you can actually serve them better too. Like, you know, I get in money, like, you know, I can earn, like, you know, as a senior software engineer, I generally work like three months a year. And that would mm. be like all I need to live in KL and contribute to my family back in Australia and make people's lives way better in KL um, kind of thing as well. And it, that's, it, it gives you more, yeah, more meaningful life. Like, yeah, you get to serve people better too. Mm, okay, yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, a new way of looking at it. Uh, I mean, and you, in a sense, that uh, previous conversations with, with other guests uh, were focusing on other topics, but this is actually the first time uh, that someone is, um, you know, emphasizing on this particular thing that I'll, that it is important also for me. Whenever I am visiting, and it doesn't matter <laughs> if it's a, you know, Western European country, because I spent a lot of time in Italy working as a tour leader, but you can always make this one little step that will uh, brighten the day for a person that you're meeting yeah, only because you are this guest and you uh, probably don't speak uh, fluent local language, but you do something um, that matters. Yeah, And maybe it's this uh, layer of uh, Google Maps yeah, or like editing or adding some important information for others and as you were saying, sometimes it's it's life changing. Like people mm. are actually benefiting from from this because other backpackers, <laughs> digital nomads, or travelers are visiting the place because someone somewhere finally added yeah this <laughs> little vegan uh, home restaurant and uh, there is so many places like this and they will always pop up yeah as uh, as you also mentioned the landscape of Bali. But also here in Kuala Lumpur, it's changing so fast. Yeah, the the, the new restaurants. I'm stay, stay, <laughs> staying in the hatchery mm -hmm. and Taipan, yeah, the usual place where we we go for uh, eating out. Within this, let's say, eight months that I am st staying here uh, in in one uh, go, I see at least two or three or five <laughs> restaurants that kind of close down, open up. Then there is a new shop. There is something else. And this is, let's say, an established part of a big city yeah, that, that should be kind of like known that, that this is good, this is not. And you can always make this change. Yeah? And I think we, we are equipped as those <laughs> digital nodes to kind of go this one more step yeah to to, to help uh, and to 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 also help other <laughs> nomads yeah in in this regard so right. in back into the, the the vision of of how your your work and how your work life balance look like when you are nomading do you have any particular setup that you need to have a co-living or you need to have like your own apartment uh, did it evolve that you you now see that there is only one 
kind of way of accommodation and one way of like setting up your own hardware and then uh, you know working with people what's your way of, of working when you are nomading right yeah well when i first kind of got into it back in you know before with the trainings and visiting overseas when i was you know 10 years ago or so there wasn't mm -hmm. really any community any digital nomad stuff was very new and that's kind of what i wanted to set up with startup hostel uh, but i found mm -hmm. it was easier rather than set them up myself was to work with existing co-working spaces and kind of convince them that co-living is a real thing and it, it is actually a market <laughs> and mm -hmm. yeah i was delightfully surprised uh when and, and like i really helped further that idea with a few others and yeah i was delightfully surprised when yeah i discovered hatchery and in 2018 and and went there which is the co-working co-living space you're at um run by kevin mm -hmm. lane and so what i would recommend now with this broader infrastructure that is available to digital nomads is start off with like a co-working co-living space um you'll get all the resources you need to kind of integrate yourself locally and then eventually everyone kind of gets tired of living with other people um you want some more space <laughs> you want to do your own routine things mm. like that it also probably depends on your personality type like how quickly that frustration occurs right like if you're extroverted it'll probably be a while longer <laughs> true uh, if you're introverted it'll probably be very quickly <laughs> but um yeah but you can always you know start there and then move and then go there for the community and return back there mm -hmm. so you know in hatchery there's the tradition of a bend day <laughs> where it's like every Monday <laughs> or whenever it was named uh, after you, know, you of course yeah we would uh go for a run and dinner and uh whatnot and and you know that's continued to evolve because one of the actually that's one of the things which we haven't scheduled for this but it is really important which is one of the the hardships mm. about being digital nomad is your friends are travelers and like that's just your personality like if you're a traveling personality your friends are travelers and it means your friends mm. are scattered all over the world and that can be quite isolating at times and it can also be very difficult when you make good friends and then they leave um so one of yeah, the little yeah. tips there is make sure you continue the tradition that you would have with those friends and that way the pain hurts less when they go mm -hmm. so that's that's um just a little little tip there but yeah <laughs> uh little tip so yeah uncle ben <laughs> yeah yeah and then um <laughs> but yeah for uh for once you get your own place uh you know scout out for different areas people will like different areas i personally love cyber gyre um in mm -hmm. ko other people like other areas like cyber gyre that most people think it's like a ghost town but that's perfect for me i like that relaxation <laughs> the lake and the nature and the food and how close uh -huh. it is and and Yeah, you, you want to find areas that you actually jive with. So I'd say maybe like spend a month in different areas and find one that really jives with you. And then even in that area, just spend some time at different ones and, you know, different areas. Like your experience, like first time I started in Cyberjaya, I started like on the other side of it. And then eventually I moved to the other side of it. And I really liked the mm -hmm. eastern side a lot more. Um, it really mm -hmm. changed my experience quite For the better so even little areas your experience can change so i would say like build a big social group try different areas and find areas that are good you're always going to have that thing of restocking the area and all of that but once you've <laughs> found a place you've settled in life does become easier but you still have your visa runs and until countries around the world realize digital nomadism is a great way for improving the local economies which it which is, is happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah with, with small steps yeah 
some yeah, countries are finally uh, introducing this kind of visas yeah like uh, malaysia is uh working on a um is doing trial runs of a digital entrepreneurship visa and hopefully mm. that goes from just a trial to an official rollout that'll if once that happens they'll probably return because mm, mm. that will make life way better getting a one to like five year visa or something like that will make life way better by the way i don't know if you know but um airbnb of course was hit when the whole uh, situation with the pandemic started but there are a couple of kind of new trends emerging uh, and they actually started to happen even before the uh, covid and one of them is uh, that uh, more and more people are starting to use the infrastructure of shared houses or like you know sharing a room or sharing a whole apartment uh, long term <laughs> and it's mm. uh, me i'm having um, an experience in uh, tourism industry and for some odd reason uh, there is this limit that in any hotel and you can actually check it on booking.com you cannot book your stay for longer than uh, 29 days <laughs> yeah. because 30 or more it means that you are kind of like renting <laughs> and doesn't right. matter if it's like five-star hotel and you you are kind of ready to pay the money you need to do like two separate book bookings if you want to book for more than this 29 right. uh, days i assume there is this you know international hotel regulations or something that uh tries to uh, you know make a difference between uh, someone who is like coming for a short contract yeah and then you have a, yeah. a actual apartment that you are renting from an owner and then everything else is a tourist yeah and the tourist mm. even if the tourist is staying almost one month uh, he he needs to to con only pay for this and then maybe move to another hotel or like have a, another booking so with airbnb what they are actually pushing forward is this notion that okay if my work is primarily on my laptop uh, then i can work three months here then three months there and um, even now when the uh, flights are are spotty and it's not easy to travel internationally you can do this within your own country if you like to be in australia and like spend three months in sydney and then three months in brisbane and then three months somewhere else you can do that yeah you can uh, get mm. a, a car or, or even you know travel by by train or some buses and then you know do this kind of way of living that uh, is similar to digital nomad of course <laughs> it's not a time to kind of look for a particular definition what it is what is not um, but i think this is uh, kind of this uh, really interesting direction that even now there is more listings of uh, houses and apartments on airbnb than it was before the pandemic which is also right. interesting yeah, that people are willing to you know keep higher standards of hygiene kind of like use i don't know better detergents or or wash the the <laughs> bed sheets more often or do this uh, mandatory kind of gap between one and another guest that there have to be like at least one or two days to kind of refresh the whole uh you know place for another guest but yeah it's it's really interesting to see what's happening and this gives me another question about the startup hostel it was in 2013 so quite a long time yeah. ago where 
this idea came from? Like, have you heard about the co-living before you started <laughs> this or, or it came after? Like, please explain, because it's, it's super interesting that you were involved into kind of creating this whole scene. Yeah, well, that's why it's called startup hostel rather than co-living because no one had come up with co-living <laughs> yet. <laughs> so, okay. so yeah, which is it's really funny because like you know because yeah because uh, I uh, you know I was doing those stints overseas all the time and and as well like in Australia you travel quite a bit for work and like I always you know knew that the this market would expand um, and yeah I attended like a work retreat in Thailand for like a month. And uh, in beginning of 2013, and then I followed that up with a talk in India. But even at the co-working mm -hmm. thing, I'm like, look, this is a market. Like, we need to do something about this. Let's get this going. And we're brainstorming with different people about, like, what it could be called and everything like that. And then he's just like, uh, one of the guys there, uh, Greg Gottman, he was just like, hey, you know what this is? This is, like, essentially a hostel for startup folk. You should just call it startup hostel. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, man, that's good. Clever name and, uh, at the time. Yeah, and then I flew to Bali for, like, a month and just, like, visited everywhere to try and find somewhere that would meet the requirements. And, Jesus, that was a nightmare. And then I found um, <laughs> Hubbard and talked with them. And then I found a company called Mailpile, uh, mm -hmm. who was operating from Guyana. And Hubert, uh, they were they had like some more premium villas for like rentals for like more events and things like that. And I was like, no, this isn't really a thing. But Peter's great. Um, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if he's still with them or not. I haven't visited Hubert for a while. But um, and then yeah, went to Guinea, talked with all the guys there, and they were kind of doing it um, already. And I just kind of gave them like my mailing list that I did from all the market research and. Uh, yeah, and the idea like won a open IDEO prize. Like IDEO is a big think tank design firm type thing around the world, and uh, they did like a thing where you could submit prizes. And it was a guy I can't remember his name, but he kind of published something similar. Like it was more like a hostel that you know allowed different work things to kind of be done there. So I interacted with him, and we kind of evolved the idea um, a little bit more. But at the end, I was just like, okay, let's just publish everything. Um, I'll publish okay. the idea, park, publish the market and just reach out to co-working spaces to kind of help them migrate because I realize like it's not fun for, you know, actually running a co-living, co-working space. It's very stressful. The logistics of it are terrible, all of mm -hmm. that. So people who prefer to do that, um, which isn't me, but there are like <laughs> event managers, like you're essentially an event manager and yeah. uh, or a real yeah. estate agent, right? Combined into the one job. <laughs> so... And also kind of like therapists and counselor for like the commune <laughs> or the community. <laughs> On times, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, um, you know, yeah. So then it ended up just getting moved into this huge uh, co-living uh, movement instead. And this is going to continue, like, especially with one Starlink or Skylink, the Elon Musk internet satellite oh, internet yeah. company gets exactly. off the ground. Like, because the biggest constraint right now to digital nomad or just really live wherever because like if you work with information your geography doesn't matter you just need an internet connection that's stable and reliable uh so starlink will mm. give like highs you know workable internet to you wherever you are and that's going to probably cause an exodus from cities back into rural areas it'll cause people to spread out again because now it wouldn't matter where you are to get that uptick yeah 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 for sure like uh, i think it's uh the needle was moved a bit with uh, mobile 
uh, in general and like the 3G or, or 4G was definitely the, the moment when people started to realize that your mobile device is kind of uh, more and more capable to, to download and upload files. Of course, <laughs> today the use case for your phone is uh, very... Uh, different or you you do stuff right. differently on your phone than you do on your laptop or on your desktop and uh, as you were saying before about those differences uh, in australia um, in general when you are in bigger city uh, it's much more easier and then also cheaper to get a proper uh, fiber yeah to get a proper cable that will bring you enough speed up and down to to do everything that is uh, on on the internet and those uh, next steps for sure is this uh, low uh, orbit uh, internet infrastructure because elon's uh, starlink idea is just one of many that is trying to to compete for this uh, space and uh, i do think that in the next five to ten years we will see a lot of uh, competition because it's a global market yeah it's like <laughs> try to yeah. to imagine that there is this uh, let's say uh, you know a village of 100,000 people uh, somewhere in in rural uh, china and also rural uh, australia and elsewhere yeah. and they really like to uh, you know get on the internet <laughs> in a proper way yeah. as everyone else are so it's, it's just yeah, a matter of time now yeah well this the facebook thing that they did in india which is like free phone free internet but it, facebook mm. tracks all the data <laughs> but uh, uh what will uh, the it's way it will probably happen is, yeah what what i mean it's good as well like a connected person like i don't know the, that that's a different discussion for <laughs> the ethics of data collection but uh the, yeah. the way i probably see it working with starlink is you'll have uh digital nomads move out and then they enrich the local community but the local community really needs to know that they are also not know um, but they it also needs to be for their benefit too not all communities want to be gentrified and gentrification isn't good for all communities um it's like yeah, the fishing yeah. village in bali like a lot of the fishermen's on the east on the coast like the northeast coast or the northwest coast they'll play like really loud music on their boats to kind of deter the tourists uh, and the expanding gentrification of hotels along the villages because they're not educated enough to get jobs in a industrialized society like in the gentrified society they all they know is mm. fishing and they never went to school um, so mm. it's very important for them to maintain their livelihoods so yeah so you'll probably get people who move out but that could be like vlogging and then tourism things like that um, you know you could have a vlogger that actually can upload 4k video from like lombok or you know more rural areas yeah, yeah, and yeah. do more live streams <laughs> and interviews and things like that so yeah yeah or in the middle of sahara desert yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would yeah, be even probably i really wait for the moment when they <laughs> start to test those technologies because it's right. it's just it's it's 100 percent certain that there will be people uh, kind of rushing there will be the same race that people did uh, you know like who is the first uh, explorer and adventurer to get to the north pole and then to the south right. pole and now the race will be who will be the first one to stream 4k <laughs> from the north pole <laughs> 
that's the thing. Oh it, man, it Pokemon Go will get like a whole new, whole new uh, <laughs> revival. Of course, exactly. Yeah. That will be the next step that you will need to book your trip to North Pole because there is this very rare Pokemon that you can catch <laughs> only being there while streaming that you are catching the Pokemon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh, that Pokemon Go famous uh, YouTuber was like, hey guys. Today we're going to. Blah, blah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey guys, it's forty below. I'm going to get hot. Yeah, I... <laughs> yeah. I already have the uh, what do you call the frozen bite? Yeah, that your fingers are like literally falling apart <laughs> yeah. because they are. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then and then you have phones that have to deal with uh, extreme weather conditions. Yeah, of course, yeah. It, it will push the technology and the the new markets. Yeah, for like this is the the first five G phone that will survive your Arctic trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, solar okay. power should also get better than solar power banks, things like that. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, then in the yeah, Arctic, right. that, well, that won't matter. You'll need something else. But in the Sahara, <laughs> solar will be the way to go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's. Oh, you uh, could even get on. drones to drop you supplies. Like, that would be cool, right? Like, just living in the middle of like the desert or whatever. And now you have internet connected drones that are solar powered and they could drop you your food supplies, like, yeah. no matter how Amazon delivery to live. within three yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's probably going to be the way it goes. Like, like I, I look forward to it. I, I love what the future holds for us. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am also interested into into looking at it, but at the same time, I do acknowledge the the kind of clash of the old world with the new world. Uh, I don't yeah. know if uh, you remember this story, but uh, I think it was already like two or three years ago when uh, there was the first case or the first kind of um, reported case that was uh, in mainstream media uh, <laughs> that there were some clever people stealing uh, or like actually avoiding taxes between Hong Kong and China, even though that they are like two systems, one country. The thing is that there were some people buying phones that are much cheaper in Hong Kong, putting them on drones and then flying over the water <laughs> to China and then picking up those those phones. And they were only spotted by by the police because they were trying to do this at night. And there was some mistake that eventually, you know, uh, caught them. And the thing is that the uh, value for those phones was already like around one million dollar. Yeah, like mm. <laughs> they were having a, a proper uh, mule with drones uh, scheme, and uh, you know something happened. So the next step. And I, I immediately thought about it after reading this article that there have to be some kind of like a drone submarine, uh, you know, machines. That would right. be really cool. Yeah. That instead of flying, yeah. you put it into the water and you put anything into the container and <laughs> you, you swim. Right. <laughs> and it's like also automatically kind of, um, you know, a program that, that the, the, I don't know, let's call it the submarine drone will will be able to let's swim you know from america america to europe mm. but on its own <laughs> yeah the, the nuclear power supply but <laughs> but yeah. uh yeah well for the drones uh like submarine drones things like that that actually got a lot of funding from the um malaysia airlines 370 flight uh that vanished oh. um 
Yeah, so yeah. that's actually like a huge investment area. Um, there's one company who's like leaving the way for that, like using like now they have completely automated drone fleets, uh, which should mm -hmm. be launching fairly soon. Uh, but it's just very difficult. There's a lot more complexity with water than with air. So yeah, yeah. it's exciting yeah, yeah. Um, for that. And, <laughs> you know, what we'll discover in the ocean as well. Oh, that'll be a new thing. Well, we'll need the Starlink for the oceans uh, in in maybe 200 <laughs> years. We're going to be like at the bottom of the ocean the next floor live stream. For sure. <laughs> I, th I think it will be right in the moment when we'll be forced to live in those underwater cities <laughs> because, you know, everything else will be devastated. So, you know, finally yeah. another sci-fi idea will be accomplished. So let's yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's get back to uh, those projects of yours because Startup Hostels was just kind of like the beginning of an uh, interesting idea. You realize that it's not really for you, but today you are focusing on more, mm, let's say, software-based projects. And Bevery, as you mentioned, is this company, but also a community that is uh, focused on um, collaboration, on, on thinking and uh, discussing about different philosophy topics. But you also have uh, projects like uh, Reading Rehab and The Fontaine. So could you uh, please tell uh, what are those projects? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, all those details can get found at beverly.me and for our projects, beverly.me slash projects. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Beverly started as a hub for my open source software development, like my consultancy business. And then we did the study group in 2017 and decided, hey, it shares much of the same goals that I have, which is allow everyone to live well, share what they love. And mm -hmm. um But that's very tricky because what happens when ISIS versus the Nazis have different opinions of what living well means, <laughs> right? So you need yeah, some way to kind like of bridge. extreme examples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even like less extreme examples, just like your Republican versus your Democrat in the USA or your yeah. country goer, like your farmer in Australia versus your city goer, right? Mm. So things like this, this is an area where you know, these people have this isolated wisdom or sometimes it even goes into like collective wisdom with religions or political groups or cults or mm -hmm. communes, things like that. But you really, you need it to get into a collaborative wisdom space where you actually want to reach out to alternative tribes and learn from them and have them also learn from you, uh, where mm -hmm. you're actually wanting to make everyone stronger, not just your own tribe. And this is... Uh, a lot of what we learned like that wasn't a, a intuitive idea that's something i learned from like the hard road of life and then studying philosophy which is if we can use our speech to overcome violence then there'll be less violence so we should use our speech for that mm -hmm. and not all the time like you know speech is the answer sometimes scarcity is really extreme and there is ideological differences which can't be met from speech so mm -hmm. you know that's when a nation will go to war Or, you know, a person will defend themselves against a, a someone who wishes to do them harm. Um, mm. So you have this big catas like catastrophe or conglomeration of complexity and sophistication in life. We're all trying mm -hmm. to do our best to understand and add the sophistication delicacy necessary. But it's hard. So what that community does uh, is a study group. 
Um, so it's processes and projects to expand the market of collaborative wisdom. So these processes is like a study group, a safe space where people can consider whatever it is. We covered the Unabomber Manifesto, which was like a Luddite domestic terrorist from the 70s. We did that only a few weeks ago. Um, he was very mm -hmm. concerned about the impact industrialization will have on the a meaningful existence. And he decided to do mail bombs uh, to uh, signs of industrialization. Um, and we went through his manifesto and kind of provided some counter arguments and considerations for it. So in some areas, he is correct, but is his <laughs> solution the best and the only solution? Certainly not. So it's kind of for that, like a lot of companies, like a company has its culture and they want to expand that culture as much as possible to increase its customers and also increase its recruitment. So, but is that company's culture correct? It, that's like the collective wisdom area. Like it would be very nice if you could increase the trade that company does, but also increase its cooperation. So, oh, and that okay. also requires a company or a community to have a place where people can really question and go beyond just the dogma. Now, any team, it does need a collective opinion on what the team wishes to achieve. Like to actually build something, you need cohesion. But that cohesion should be challenged so you don't walk off the edge of a cliff of ideology to your despair while you grab onto rocks that are actually false axioms. Um, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yeah, so we have these processes, which is in better study, increase in better ways of discussing contentious ideas. And then we're building software around that. So right now that software is merely a YouTube channel and a, a discourse forum, discuss.bevery.me, but the project's reading rehab and fountain, but first will be one code study, uh, Bevery study. So uh -huh. that will be when you're watching a lecture on YouTube or eventually also a book or a audiobook or whatever it is, you'll be able to take like timestamp notes and schedule discussions to discuss those notes. So when you're watching a lecture, similar to the SoundCloud interface, you'll be able to see people's commentary of specific topics that that lecturer just talked about. And then you'll also be able to schedule a discussion for that lecture. Reading Rehab does the same thing for books. Part of the benefit we got from reading the classics was we discussed them. When we watch a challenging movie or read a challenging book, we can be like, oh my God, this was amazing. But then a month later, we're reading some other book and we're thinking, oh my God, that's amazing. We failed to put anything into practice. That's why I called it reading rehab. It solves like a, the junkie mm -hmm. habit of reading. So instead, discussing with other people and arguing about what is the way to integrate this book and the lessons and are the lessons even the best lessons is the way to go. So people have probably, maybe they've done like a reading group in their life where they've been like, hey, let's all agree on which book to read which is hard enough and then you have to schedule a time when everyone will read <laughs> it sure. which is incredibly hard and then you have to all get together and then discuss it right like unbelievable complexity and the internet can fix this mm. like why is it that we have millions of people reading the same book and yet they're not discussing with each other so reading rehab mm. will be launching this year to really help with that as well as the beverage study projects they'll be launching um this year and just to make this way of moving from isolated or collective wisdom into collaborative wisdom way easier and cement our mm -hmm. knowledge and increase our wisdom and just to be sure the reading rehab works in the asynchronous uh, way is it right yeah yeah so it'll be like uh it'll hook into the books you're already reading from your goodreads account and then mm -hmm. it will um uh suggest meetings with other people who read the same book with the same availability as you 
Um, so that way mm -hmm. you read a book and then next week you'll be like, okay, there's a study group for this book on Saturday at 5 p.m. or something like that. And then you can okay. um, participate in that discussion. And then Fountain's kind of like a tool that will be way down the line on um, taking conversations which people have chosen to record to then add them back into the study infrastructure so people can even study your own responses in your own discussions if you choose to okay okay so all of those projects are somehow re revolving around the different concepts of philosophy and um, why do you think philosophy is important why uh, let's extend it the ethics or just uh, <laughs> understanding our own thoughts and uh, moral structures is important yeah well it's mostly it's you, you want to learn the smart way with things um, more than the mm. hard way if you have the capacity to learn the smart way and sometimes learning the hard way is the only option available to us I actually have a prepared mm -hmm. statement on this that I wrote um, a few okay. years ago. <laughs> Let's which go. Is, I am in the ocean on a ship. The ship is my body or a spiritual home, as a marriage would also work as the ship. I am hopefully the sailor. There are storms which are external influence that will harm me against my will. Other days, the weather will help. I must be willing to navigate and revise my navigation in case the stars or the compass fails. This requires a consistent improvement of my intuitions and the ability to revise them in the face of better arguments, so dramas of the mind. My ability to survive in the seas is purely from my past and thus present efforts to protect my future self from my worst and laziest self. With practice, I will find moments of respite, an island of grace, a vista of weather here and there. Before the area runs dry with the lack of potential, which is a now previous ideal, a previous true north of the compass, which will now have known insufficiencies and is met with boredom, frustration, curiosity of new potentials. And eventually I will board the ship again. So if anyone's seen the movie Life of Pi, it's fantastic, uh -huh. right? And I took... Um, yeah, 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 I saw it. Yeah, and, you know, it's about these... Uh, this real uh, struggle for survival, but also this subconscious struggle for survival at the same time. And it blends the boundaries between the two. And Moby Dick is also a tale where one way of interpreting Moby Dick is the whale is a metaphor for the subconscious, the demons, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the super ego um, that wishes to do harm and maintain. And there's also a great movie called... Um, the boy and the beast yeah, anime fantastic but in times uh -huh. right you want to uh, kind of everything in that you you don't want to build your life on false foundations or discover you did too late you want to make sure that you're working towards what is true north and you want to make sure that you have the capacity to survive that journey without encountering trauma so and there's many different true norths as well and this is one of the things that makes it hard and there's many false idols so it, 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 that that's kind of my little sales pitch but obviously uh it's a personal journey and everyone's on their own personal journey right mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and some people philosophy won't do anything for them and and especially like you know if you're living a life where 
you know all the rewards are in your favor and this is what the sjw will call privilege right like where you benefit from the society oh sorry when you fit within the mold of society such that you benefit mm. from it then then that's fine until the society crumbles and people revolt against the society um <laughs> things like that so exactly. it's also a way like you know a democracy is meant to be where a, a stepping stone from feudalism where feudalism and minority rule the majority then with the democracy the majority rules uh the minority mm. but uh democracy also requires a culture to remain consistent because if that culture fractures then you will now have competing tribes fighting for the monopoly of government power and that will then bring mm. in a revolution that will continue until the culture stabilizes uh, so you want to reduce the violent feedback loop as much as possible by using speech to overcome uh, insufficiencies. And that's kind of like mm -hmm. the thing of philosophy. The a way to drill that home into something really practical for everyday person is whether or not one should quit or persevere, right? In startups, this is should I quit, should I pivot, or should I continue? Like when is it that yeah. the payoff will occur? And that depends on the axioms you've launched in with your startup. What are the things you've hedged your startup on? If you've built it on a false market, then you're going to get hurt really badly. Just financially, unless you're doing things illegally, in which case you'll be put into prison, right? But mm -hmm. uh, in life, these are also things like a relationship or even for suicide, things like that, which is the exact same question. I think at Albert Camus or one of the existentialists said the ultimate philosophical question is whether or not you should kill yourself. <laughs> and uh pretty much everything kind of comes down to to that and then or and which is a paraphrase of whether life is worth living and whether or not you should live it and different schools of philosophy kind of dealt with that but the best introduction to all of it would be a book called how to read a book before i read that life was this amorphous <laughs> being that i just wallowed in i didn't really mm -hmm. understand where i fitted in i didn't really understand society it just seemed to be overwhelming and complex and then I read that book and then I realized, oh, life is just built upon the best information that we have, which is written by people who have spoken cross-generationally, which is what the written word exactly. is. So yeah. the classics are what have built society. So if you want to understand society, you read the classics and you start to realize, wow, so much of everyday mimology um, or like social structures is based on ideas is uh, just based on routines that have been devised and sometimes only very, very recently. Like um, mm. you have the development of reason. So like before Socrates a thousand or so years ago, I can act actually I have no idea on the dates, but with Socrates, <laughs> uh, you- um, Ancient uh, Greece in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a bit, so, a bit um, more- Whenever that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so with Socrates, you, um, before that, uh, whatever you reasoned or whatever you argued could be true, it was like this subjective wisdom. Um, when Socrates like kind of challenged that and you would get two people and you would do the Socratic method on them Which is essentially asking mm -hmm. why enough times before they have a trigger uh, And they have an axiomatic <laughs> exactly. concern, which is a hidden to cognitive dissonance, right? Um, and he, so that kind of was like, okay, people have different subjective truths and then uh, His whole thing was well what we reason then should be true Which is what we can argue the best will then be true and then it was 
up until Immanuel Kant, he then wrote the book, The Critique of Pure Reason, I think 300 years ago or so. And um, in that one, he said, look, we can't just reason what is true because people could reason different things well and not everything has a conclusive answer. We actually need mm. to go beyond that. And then Descartes kind of ran with that, um, which is he's kind of touted as one of the first scientists of the new scientific method uh, where he's like, look, we can't just reason it. We also need to test it. Um, and that was the exactly. birth kind of thing of objectivity. And then that's kind of evolved over time. Politically, uh, each political movement kind of solves like democracy as an improvement of feudalism. And now it seems liberty is a very new concept, only a few uh, hundred years old and how to actually achieve it politically. So liberty seems to be a very interesting one now. But then you also have things like economics, morality, ethics, um, like things could be moral to me and different for what's moral to Piotrek. And then an ethical debate mm. about that will try and come to, well, what is the best alternative for both of us um, and try and overcome our individual stories or maybe even respect our individual stories. So yeah, it's a big, big can of worms, but the whole point is try and stop traumatic issues of cognitive dissonance that completely screw up your life. That's, that's the sale point of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I must admit that uh, my uh, kind of understanding uh, how important it is uh, came from realization that rhetorics, you know, the particular, mm, let's say, subgenre <laughs> within uh, philosophy, uh, that's more about how you say things to influence others. Yeah, that mm. uh, it's it's um, really interesting that we no longer live in times where the loudest man in the room is the ruler. Yeah, is the only person that can vote or veto or like you know take charge of whatever is happening in the community, uh, whatever it is a society, a nation, or like a small village, and um, to achieve that spot uh, in in time, we needed to realize a lot of other elements yeah, of. Um, where does the the great ideas um, come from yeah, and and uh, how do we even define the the great ideas and um, uh, time and again it's really easy to be caught up in the current state of affairs kind of like look at uh, a current us president as this um, you know a person that manages to 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 keep up the 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 populism uh, way of, of talking to, to people but it requires really <laughs> small amount of, of your uh, perception and then like uh, getting a bit into a history that we ha we had a lot of people like him yeah it's it's uh, just a way of rhetorics yeah of, of, of way of speaking to people way of like pointing out arguments and then uh, if you know those techniques if you know how they are using it you can really quickly debunk uh, if they are saying it's true or not uh, if they are saying it's just an opinion if if it's something that just is there to to kind of cheer up people or, or drive them down uh, it, there are so many kind of ways of, of using this and then thinking about it um, and um, yeah it's 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 really interesting uh, that 
philosophy is not so emphasized <laughs> within the the current uh, school system. Uh, I was fortunate enough to 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 had the the lessons of it uh, back in high school, uh, and then I continued on on my own. So, if I can ask you, what's the kind of may the the, mo- the most important output you would like to get from your projects and from from this philosophy focus like do you think of, of one particular goal that people would achieve mm. uh, or, or we would achieve as, as a global society right yeah uh, I, I just really hope people will um, just have the same benefits I had which is just like a great like just a greater empathy for uh, other people I started off mm. as like your typical liberal progressive kind of thing but also Australian like I didn't have that identity politics uh, that is unique to America to some extent compared to Australia mm. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is in Europe but yeah mm. and man I just had some life experiences that smacked me sideways and they just didn't add up with the progressive narrative at all and it took me three or four years to kind of get back on track and um mm-hmm. And then, yeah, uh, and then after that, it's like I have great, great empathy for like people on all sides. Some, to some extent, I'm a little bit uh, facetious and uh, a little bit trolly, my typical Aussie disagreeable nature. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I do it because um, just a, a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's kind of different ways you try and can make people stronger. There's, there's only this, um, uh, you know, there's a way where you can, by providing tests to people, you allow them the opportunity to overcome, and mm. that's um, that's that's really really nice. But personally, we just covered uh, the Christchurch manifestos. Sorry, the Christchurch shooters manifesto only a few weeks ago. Mm. We did a series on propaganda, and then you know, domestic terrorist manifestos, which was like a natural lead on because we finally felt like after three or four years of studying it, we had some counter arguments that no one heard before. And if okay. you don't engage with what is causing someone identity crisis, then they will collectivize under their shared trauma and radicalize. Um, mm. And this goes for anyone on any political spectrum when it's not even political. It's just people need to be in a society that allows them to thrive. And if they aren't, then uh, things can get dangerous. So it's um, and that that applies for yeah anyone, any demographic and to an extent, <laughs> right? But mm. Uh, my hope for that, like I had butterflies in my belly and everything going before because I was like, geez, we better do this diligently. Like, uh, I don't want to. But it ended up becoming like like for our watch ratio, like our watch minutes and the views. It's one of our good performing videos and it's probably going to continue to become one of the best. Um, and, huh? you know, my hope there is just, you know, people. And we followed up with one because I, I recorded it. I'm like, actually, even talking about this, even having counter-arguments that I've never heard anyone else have uh, or shared before, I think we could even go better on this. So I continue researching them. Next week, we followed it up with a analysis of the Borderless documentary, uh, which went into mm-hmm. a lot more practical solutions than killing immigrants. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, we covered yeah. these things and it's, um, 
you know, people, they, they want to feel heard and have solutions to their problems. And if they don't have solutions, then violence is a solution we've relied on for a very long time. So, mm. yeah. So the hope there is like, I, I'm still hoping one day I'll get like a little comment or a message from someone and just be like, hey, uh, that, that was some really good arguments. Um, like I, I, you told me things I didn't know before, but to some extent we have these things. Like the people who have participated in beverage, like that's just for that, that, uh, video, but in beverage, we've, we've seen this grow in people. They start off stammering. They start off unsure of themselves. They don't really know how they fit in, um, or anything like that. And then six months later, they're like a force to be reckoned with. They're, they're great speakers. They can debate, they can <laughs> do all sorts of things. And it's, it's great to see that benefit from, you know, that happened to myself and happened to the other Beverly participants who participated for a while. Awesome. Yeah. That's, uh, this, this, this sounds really uh, uplifting. Yeah. And in a yeah. sense that it doesn't uplift us eating an ice cream. <laughs> is for a kid uh, because it can bring you joy and like you know bonding with your family members and it's great but <laughs> once you are an adult and like a citizen of, of any particular part of the world and you have those complex issues and we do all have uh, it's uh, the matter of uh, having the ability of, of talking about those issues with others and um, it's really great to have the platform like you are building to uh, encourage others to to speak up to take turns and and be into into the debate of sometimes really uh, you know heavy topics yeah because w w what can be more heavy than than the, the mass shooting yeah yeah once again thanks for for doing that <laughs> and just to kind of encourage uh, listeners uh, if they are happy to to dig more into those philosophy uh, themed uh, questions uh, we are uh, going to record with ben uh, another uh, session uh, not here in the podcast but in uh, his platform in Beverly, and there will be more about the the, the issues the things that are connected more uh, to his uh, field so let's uh, continue those topics there and um, before we wrap up i have three three more uh, things to ask you. So uh -huh. first of all, please tell me uh, what is your uh, financial structure, if you can say. Uh, you previously mentioned that you can work only like three months on a contract uh, as a, a full stack uh, senior uh, developer uh, at some company. And then uh, the rest of the, uh, of the year you could um, like nomad in some places like Kuala Lumpur. Uh, but uh, in general, do you have some kind of way that, you know, uh, January to March you are working and then the rest of the year uh, you are not working, you are like focusing on your own projects or do you have some other way of, um, you know, earning uh, for your life? Right, yeah, it's it's been uh, a bit all over the place. Like I, I started programming when I was eight years old. I was just very curious and very blessed with my uh, my learning experience. So I got into certain programs that allowed me to really explore that curiosity with some great teachers. And um, but and then started consultancy when I was fifteen. I I got um open source work. I, I was doing open source work for free, just making things I cared about. And people started saying, "Hey, let me pay." you to do stuff for us um, mm -hmm. as well. And I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah. And then did like employee stuff for a while and then 
had a uh, I was like I worked at a um a CRM software customer relationship management uh software company uh for like a year mm-hmm. while I was doing university and they were like essentially build Google Calendar for our thing. And I pretty much built it before like Google <laughs> Calendar was a thing. Man, like it was good. And I was like, we need to open source this. Awesome. Like this this is a product in of itself. And they just did not mm. agree. And I was like, I'm leaving. Like, I'm not gonna thrive here. <laughs> like uh but <laughs> And then after that, um, I flew to Sydney uh, and where there was more work and also be with my uh, partner. Um, he had more family mm-hmm. in Sydney and my open source work was very much recognized over there. And I kind of moved up the startup thing, like just working for like $20 an hour contracts that actually were fixed rate, I mean, fixed hours, like for a fixed price. Mm-hmm. So in the end, it turned out into like $10 an hour or something like that because they put in like twice the time <laughs> to make sure it was actually good. But then like through that recommendation cycle, just worked my way up um, higher and higher and higher. Pretty much ran like the Think and Grow Rich uh, playbook by uh, uh, Napoleon Hill. That book okay. was very impactful to me in that time and just kind of built up my career capital. Uh, and then eventually got into consultancy, you know, paid to be the smartest person in the room often what will happen is big design firms will get land million dollar contracts and they have no idea how to actually do it so then they hire uh, <laughs> consultants to actually then once they've won the contract then they hire a consultant to figure out how to do it of and course train their stuff. <laughs> the, the first phase <laughs> is just to win the contract and then like oh, actually can we do this <laughs> yeah yeah so then that was my job for a while and then um and then that started closing down on the IP stuff and then I got emails from like Google and Facebook and stuff trying to recruit me and then it would always go through like the you know final phases and then it'll be like hey mm. sign these NDAs where we like own everything <laughs> and I was like why do you put me through this like why do you put me through all of this if you're just going to give me that you know I can't sign this and then mm. um so then uh and then after that I, just, I did the moneyless thing for a, for a quite a while, and then uh, and then just was like, okay, where's a place that will actually reward people like me? And it, I did like crypto trading for a while, and then I realized, oh, well, the crypto scene is actually very much incredibly switched on people who are challenging like mm. everything and wish to be challenged. Um, it's like a new frontier, and any new frontier, you have people who are playing high risk, high reward stakes. And who are exceptionally talented because of those rewards. Mm. Uh, so I started working in things like decentralization technology and getting contracts in that area. But the three month thing, like that's just a personal preference. Like I can work three months, earn enough money that I would need to live for a year, need to live mm-hmm. like minimalism and all the rest of the stuff, and uh, you yeah. know, not the earn until I die, pay off my mortgage, and have a white picket fence home. Uh, no, just earn as much as I need and then um, spend the rest of the time learning um, and trying mm. to build my own company because I kind of view, at least for me, the epitome of success is to be able to build a company um, that's actually mm-hmm. sustainable mm-hmm. because if I can do that, then I've proved I can create something and sustain it and grow a team around it and customers mm-hmm. actually demand it. To me, that's like the highest epitome of success. You've got philosophy, you've got business, you've got mm. economics. You've got all these different areas. So that's really my goal. And my goal is, you know, hope to see Beverly become sustainable um, more and more over time. Now, in between getting there, which is probably your, one of your big things, is you do consultancy and then affiliate marketing is always really good. 
you know, as you become an mm-hmm. expert, people trust what you say. And also you develop some unique uh, specialized experiences. For me, like I had a motorbike accident um, in Bali and then the insurance company that I had, they didn't really cover me. Uh, and then a different insurance company uh, reached out and they were like, hey, we would have actually covered you. Uh, so like I did a blog post all about like my horrific experience not being covered and then I kind of recommend it and I get like a percentage of thing and I'll, I'll leave mm-hmm. it up to PeerTrack, which leak he wishes to use because I know PeerTrack uh, <laughs> shouts out the same uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah we, can, we, can, we can say about it. Yeah, it's a safety yeah. wink and I am really pleased of how they approach the whole idea of insurance and actually they are like one of the first companies to, to also recognize the uh, market of digital nomads and remote workers and how right. uh, kind of difficult for us it is to kind of stay extended period of time because for example uh, just comparing to, to other uh, kind of insurance that I um, did have from my country all of them would have some kind of time limit yeah and uh, if I'm spending more than 180 days abroad they do not cover it again with this definition of a trip because for, for them, I'm already living abroad. Doesn't matter if there is pandemic, if there is are, uh, you know, other kind of issues that could lock me up in one place. They just decided that um, it's similar like this definition of staying in a hotel. You cannot stay longer than 29 nights. And why? It's, it's like completely ridiculous idea. And it's interesting to have those companies to, to kind of challenge the status quo and allows you to to have it for whatever time you need. Yeah. And um, right. okay, getting back to uh, your uh, company, is it uh, registered in Australia? Yeah. So before, uh, when I was running as a consultancy, it was just your P2I limited mm-hmm. company. Then that became more expensive than what a moneyless thing cost to do the accounting and the paperwork for it. So then I shut it down these days because we're not really earning uh, anything above like the tax uh, bracket, then it's it's unregistered. What I will probably end up doing is registering it in Australia as this mouthful. I unincorporated, uh, actually I can't remember what it is, but essentially it's a non-profit. Okay. It's a huge mouthful of like okay. five different terms in Australia. Um, so we'll be going that <laughs> route. It simplifies a lot because, okay. and like why profit versus non-profit, it's about what is the motivators? Like, are people going in it, in it for extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation? Mm-hmm. Um, so extrinsic motivation is like salary and equity, uh, where intrinsic motivation is you actually get value from the product that you are building. So nonprofits, people are generally working at nonprofits because they're getting value from what the nonprofit is doing personally. So mm-hmm. that's the um, why we're probably going to go down that route. It simplifies a lot of conversations, especially around recruitment and just okay. fair fair um, return on investment for those who contribute. Mm-hmm. And you personally, when you are doing some consulting, uh, do you do this as a freelancer? Yeah, as a sole trader. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Each country yeah. will have different terminology for what it is. Like Australia doesn't just have nonprofit. It's got like 10 different things. And then, um, and like they intersect uh, with each other. But yeah, freelancer in Australia is like sole trader. It's like free to apply. You get an ABN Australian sure, business sure. number and it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty important to have this 
structure behind you and I assume this is also easy for you to use whenever you would work for a company in the US or in Europe uh, because they do recognize those uh, you know Australian structures yeah, and papers so it shouldn't be a problem for you to <laughs> to, yeah. to, to do the the projects okay so the second thing I wanted to ask you is there any healthy habit that you would continue to do wherever you, you go uh, in terms of meditation, journaling, breathing? How do you cope in a sense of, you know, keeping the burnout rate <laughs> short or, right. or just do not, uh, you know, allow yourself to, to burn out because of work? So for um, for habits to kind of keep myself happy, uh, it, it needs to adjust for where I am. Like in Sydney, the weather is mm -hmm. abysmal and it's very privatized. The areas for running isn't that high. Uh, usually for me, running is incredibly important. I actually used to run a lot when I was a kid, uh, but then I got out of it as an adult. Other priorities came up. But then I was researching like biohacking just because I was trying to make myself more happy. And I realized hormones are incredibly important. That's essentially what antidepressants are trying to alter in you, your hormones. So, and also a lot of personality things are just your hormones, right? And people have, uh, by heritage or by, you know, their birth, uh, different distributions of hormones. Um, mm. So, that's kind of what is being seek to be changed and what you cannot change. So, run is high. If you go for a run and over 45 minutes, you increase pace gradually. Then around the 45-minute mark, uh, you will get this run is high and your body gets flooded with endorphins it's kind of like taking an ecstasy pill that lasts like five minutes but it's benefits along mm -hmm. and i really got into that my running pace went from like eight minutes down to like four minutes um a kilometer and yeah i, I do that really really happy with that but in sydney it's hard so in sydney i don't really have anything yet besides maybe just walks every now and then i'm trying to get back into running just go for a drive to somewhere where it's nice to run and do it Mm -hmm. But in Bali, it's motorbiking. There's nowhere really to run unless you want to get run over. <laughs> so in Bali, it's motorbike. Um, and I okay. love motorbiking over there, but it's gentrified a lot more. Uh, so now there's way more tourists who are overconfident and underskilled. And there's a lot of uh, locals who have never had formal training. They never check their blind spots. They drive on the wrong side of the road. It's uh, Bali... I wouldn't say is a joyful place to drive anymore. Each year it's gotten mm. worse. Maybe Lombok or other places would be nice. But yeah, uh, for meditation, I differ probably from a lot of people. I, I think I would say I'm going to go against the mainstream here, but I think what I'm saying is a mainstream for at least half the population, which is that mm -hmm. for me, meditation isn't sitting in a room or being stagnant it, it, and like letting my mind and just focusing on stillness. That is the opposite mm -hmm. of meditation for me. Meditation to me is tied with action. When I run, I tap into the ether. I feel joy. I allow my thoughts to come and go. And I get thoughts that are actually empowering and, and I can observe these. Mm -hmm. And any type of thing where I can just really move and just enter into the flow state to me that's meditation now i think that difference in people is how they deal with adrenaline we had a situation not a situation a situation uh no just like a a, a occurrence i guess at um a drum circle and at a drum circle uh -huh. i would do a drum circle and i would always be thrilled and live in uh live with the energy kind of thing and just want to continue so after a drum circle i'll be like all right i'm gonna go for a run and i go for a run and feel great 
then other people when they do a drum circle they need to like completely wind down because otherwise it stresses and they don't deal with it well uh, so I would generally just skip the like the mindful part after a drum circle and go for a run uh, when other people they need it so I think what the difference here is how people deal with adrenaline some people when they get adrenaline um, it feels great and they love it and other people when they get adrenaline it's a sign that something is terribly wrong so they need to reduce it otherwise it'll lead to cortisol and and other hormones that will stress them out um so i mm-hmm. think it's just what people personally find so yeah for me running is great but really for burnout i don't see burnout really as a bad thing burnout is essentially when you've encountered cognitive dissonance that you've ignored for too long in which case it then mm-hmm. forces a change on you so what you want to do is you want to reduce the cognitive dissonance you have by becoming as integrated as you can with the world with it like get as far out of your bubbles as you can i think to an extent that's a lot of what travel is about when we travel we embrace other cultures we realize different ways of being and living and that Mm. you know it's always outside our bubble so well like burnout is just you know it's kind of just like a revolution in a country a revolution isn't really good or bad it's just something that fixes a previous problem that went ignored for too long so what you want is you want to just reduce the need for a revolution or need for burnout and make your recovery quicker and quicker. And that's something I've improved uh, quite well over my life. I've, I'll have it, but maybe instead of lasting months or years, it'll <laughs> only last a few days or a few hours or something like that until I can mm-hmm. you know, do the things that I need to change. It's, it's not a stressful <laughs> thing. It's just a growth experience. Sure, sure. Uh, just to add on uh, to this notion that meditation can be achieved in different ways i totally agree to that there is no one school to that and i am open for any personal individual way of it and i definitely find a meditative state when i am snowboarding <laughs> nature color uh, landscape and a sensitivity of of being attached to a board that is going through powder snow it's just one of these ways of achieving a different state of mind if you want to follow again this uh, one definition of meditation that can be acknowledged by some people and just to be sure that we close this one loop i mentioned that you you also turned into veganism do you also think of it as a healthy habit or this is just like a preference or how do you think about it? Yeah, for veganism, probably the best way to explain my relationship to it is like the development mm. arc for it, which is I, I never really liked milk. I always thought the whole concept of milk was a little bit gross. Like if you just have the imagery of it mm-hmm. uh, in your head of you sucking a cow's uh, teats, it's it's a little bit disturbing. Mm. So, And I just never, never really liked the flavor. I knew like dairy would always, like cheese would always make my skin oily and make my hair oily and never really liked it. So that's at least that was easy for me to switch up milk like i try like all the different milks in like 2010 or something i was like oh the plant milks are fine i'm just going to use them but then in 2012 there was a campaign by animals australia and they had camera footage of what would happen when a calf or different animals australian animals who grew up fairly well in australia because we don't really do factory farming for beef or like for certain categories of animals in australia we Uh do factory farming more for eggs and dairy but for meat animals it's more grass-fed more 
better uh, options. So they showed these happy animals kind of leaving from Australia, going on boats where half of them died or whatever, some extraordinary amount. And then they would go to Indonesia and they would meet these horrific deaths of horrible slaughters uh, that weren't particularly mm. regulated. And I witnessed that and I was like, oh my God, I'm not having meat anymore when I go to Bali. That's out. I don't want to risk mm. participating in that. And then when we're in India, uh, myself and my partner, everyone was vegetarian where we were. And it was like, oh, the people who can afford food, they're fine. Like they're not dying mm. like, like from malnutrition. <laughs> and the food's amazing. So yeah, we, uh, exactly. we went uh, vegetarian immediately because it's like, well, why, why hurt the animal if it doesn't need to be hurt, if the food's just as good without it? So then, um, but then a month later, I actually attended a Tony Robbins event of all things, one of his walk on fire mm. ones. And one whole day of that was just about health. And they showed you like, you know, the whole abattoir process or the whole, you know, from chicken to plate type things for eggs and for dairy and everything like that. And I was like, oh my God, it's just as horrific. And then they also went into like the health issues as well. And for me, it was just, I didn't care at all about the health stuff. As long as I'm alive, then it's fine. But it was just the mm. horror of what they experienced. And I was just like, I can't risk this. I don't want to risk funding this, participating in this. I don't want any part of this. Uh, so I go back home and I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing even eggs or dairy anymore. Like, no. Nah. And my partner freaked out. She's like, how, how what about health and everything like that? And <laughs> Uh, then it was like a growth over like, you know, I had that conviction and then fortunately my partner's very caring and, and very nurturing and kind of figured out how to do it healthy <laughs> and everything like that. But yeah, the first year of it was kind of like, well, why are you vegan? Like everyone asking you that every five seconds and then, you know, always wrestling with <laughs> this like evangelism thing as if you're working at like a church ministry. <laughs> but <Exactly>. mostly <laughs> it's just trying to prove your own uh your own thoughts on it like what are the best arguments and i actually ended up finding like most vegans don't actually have good arguments for why they're vegan like if vegans are actually wanting to reduce harm then and mm. they should be like in papua where like in a tribe in papua where the ecology is like uh humans potatoes and pigs and they kill the pigs and eat the potatoes for full nutrition or you can go to mongolia and then you can participate in the nomads of the steppes where the ecology is like horses grass and, true wolves and humans not us yeah yeah because <laughs> i actually read a book by tim cope and he went from uh -huh. he did the trail of genghis khan by a horseback and that mm. like completely challenged my whole conception of veganism that book because they are yeah. without a doubt doing less harm than the average western person and the mm. horses they like they protect the horses from the wolves that's the first domestication of an animal we have is horses mm. Forty thousand years ago very early and um you know they eat the sickest horse and from that horse they have everything like their shelter the the utilities they drink the horse milk and everything like mm. it's a very symbiotic relationship and to some extent we have that symbiotic relationship with dogs too that's why we domesticated them from wolves wolves learned mm. it was better to partner with humans and get the human scraps because they were better hunters and we always facilitate the humans in our hunting as well so you know these mutual things and that really challenged me because like wait if i really care about veganism then I should be like, a, like, I'm sorry, care about reducing harm. Uh, then I should be like a Jain in India who have practiced Gaia theory of veganism for thousands of years. They're one of the earliest religions. 
Um, so like mm. for them, like the priests of that, they will be naked and they they won't eat. Like they'll wear facial masks to like stop killing the bacteria, and then they'll like um, uh, not eat potatoes or eat onions because if you eat potatoes and onions, you kill the whole plant. So they even want to reduce the harm to plants. So at the end, yeah. I wrote a blog post and I said uh, what vegans and non-vegans alike don't get about veganism, and I make my case that it is actually about reducing unnecessary harm. And that is a gradual、mm-hmm. process. At times, it may be unavoidable, and but you should seek to make it avoidable in the future, and you should seek to make it unnecessary. So, for instance, when I go in Bali, the my first time actually eating meat as a vegan,、uh, animal flesh,、mm-hmm. uh, was at a time、uh, where one of my friends、uh, was graduating from university, a Balinese man. And he was like 45, and finally graduating from university, he moved from the one of the other islands, the islands of Flores, to study and live his dream kind of thing. And they sacrificed their chicken,、uh, mm. and gave their prayers to bless the family, and they blessed the chicken because for them, killing the chicken was a way of blessing it and guaranteeing that it's going to go to the gods. And that's as well.、Mm. It, it very much related to a lot of what I read about prayers and things like that. I covered all of that blog post. Uh, but for me, it would do more harm to curse that family than to eat that already dead chicken. So,、mm-hmm. what I care is about is reducing unnecessary harm. When I see my friends in poverty in the、uh, fishing villages, I will eat their fish. That's the livelihood. You know, that's、mm-hmm. that's minimal harm. They caught it themselves. So, yeah. yeah. But and they don't have the blessing of a supermarket. And this is one of the things from philosophy <laughs> that I learned, which is generally. Uh, morality follows economics. You may think that you're being wise and being on the right side of history now, but it's only the right side of history now, probably because it's economic、exactly. to do so. You won't die because of that morality. So generally, if you're having a morality and it will lead to you being exterminated, that morality won't live on that well. It's not a sustainable morality. So why is there a vi- rise in veganism? Well, supermarkets say they, they gave worldwide nutrition for a very convenient price. Um, so、mm-hmm. now there's not a necessity to eat meat. Now, if I was in Papua or in Mongolia or in a fishing village in Philippines or in Bali, it's a very different story. They don't have the wealth to have nutrition. It causes them harm to adopt veganism or、mm-hmm. to adopt a vegetarian, a strict vegetarian diet. So veganism, I would still say that a lot of these, and that's one of the things. A lot of the meat eaters and the hunters that I know,、uh, or hunters, I w- would specifically say, like fishing fishermen,、mm-hmm. things like that. They they're more vegan than than many、uh, people because、uh, they、um, they really understand、uh, the whole ecology of it and they don't wish to do harm. I will put the link to this、uh, blog post of yours uh, to uh, my website to the blog post that is about、uh, this episode. So just go to nerdontour.net/ben and there I will、uh, give all. The notes we were talking about here, and also the links of everything we mentioned. And、uh, before we finish, could you say where、uh, should people find you online? Where are you most active? Yeah,、uh, so you can follow me at、uh, bealupton.com and mostly on Twitter. So bealupton.com/slash/twitter, twitter.com/slash/bealupton. But otherwise. The, where all my work and effort goes is in Beverly, so you can join our Discord、okay. community at beverly.me/discord or join us on YouTube at beverly.me/youtube. 
yeah, that's the best place to be part of what I care about <laughs> is at Beverly. <laughs> awesome, awesome, Ben. Thank you very much for all the things we covered here. It was a very wide-ranging conversation, and I'm really happy that we could uh, do this. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much, Piotrek. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having you on the Beverly Show too. Thank you for listening. Would you like to be notified about new episodes? Subscribe to Nerd on Tour newsletter. It's an email subscription list about all things digital nomad. Each Tuesday, you will get a minimalistic email from me. It can contain a short story, link to a new blog post or podcast episode. Every time, I try to make it practical and thoughtful. Subscribe at nerdontour.net slash newsletter. Yeah.